Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mix engineer Gary Lux. First of all, do artists really want to stay independent? Well, the promise of crypto and NFTs and Web3 is to eliminate the middleman, and the middleman is always who gets the most money. Artists have been fed up with it for a long time. The promise now says there's no need for a record label and there's no need for management. You could all do it yourself, or at the very least, you can reduce the reliance that you have on the middleman. Artists have always at least partially hated record labels and publishers, so this might seem like a good idea. If you look at it closely, though, you'll find that most of these promises are coming from the tech industry and not so much from the music community. Most musicians and actors and writers and filmmakers and creative people in general really do prefer the support of an institution that has expertise. It just makes their life easier. It's easier to get money to create. It's easier to get support to create. It's easier to not think about marketing, for instance, or sales. Now, if you want proof of this, even artists that have majorly big, deep pockets like Taylor Swift or Adele or Jay-Z, well, guess what? They're signed to major record labels. They're not doing it themselves. Good managers and labels know how to help artists, and they have the infrastructure that's really difficult to duplicate. And in the end, most artists would just rather create instead of having to do the business. Artists have more power and they have better deals than they've ever had before. When you're starting today as an artist, you sort of have to be a jack of all trades, but that doesn't mean you're good at everything. And even if you do get good at one thing, it doesn't mean that you have all the skills that you need to grow a career. So don't buy into the fact that crypto and NFTs and Web3 is going to really substantially change the way artists do business. Yes, it's going to help them. Yes, it's going to contribute. But in the end, artists really do want a collaboration with some experts that can do business better than they can. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, learn about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, the musical instrument part of the industry is going through a major revolution, but it might not be that apparent. In the past, we've had really big product innovations. The Hammond organ, for instance, was one of the first instruments to take advantage of electricity and turn it into music. Leo Fender was responsible for mass-producing guitars. The drum machine changed the way we thought about how music was put together and how drummers, and all musicians for that matter, would play to the beat. Then we had software that rendered tape machines obsolete. So product innovations led the musical instrument industry. We're not really ready to say the product innovation has reached its end point, but it really has slowed lately. Everything today is more of an evolution rather than an innovation. And if you go to a NAMM show, you'll see that right away, as things haven't changed all that much from year to year for quite a long time. The revolution that we're undergoing is mostly unseen. 
sales and distribution represented one of the biggest costs in any musical product, typically accounting for somewhere between 35 and 40% of the retail selling price. But now we have online retailers like Sweetwater and Amazon that have changed that equation. We have targeted marketing with low overhead and way lower costs. Niche product that wouldn't have a chance previously, like what you find downstairs in the lower levels of the NAM show. They never would have had a chance previously. But now, if you have a compelling demonstration video, you can micro-target to potential buyers in social media. So a manufacturer can quickly and cheaply get the word out, even on the most specialized products. Brick-and-mortar retailers now even use Amazon and Reverb to sell products to a much wider audience than they have locally. This revolution is more about marketing than it is about product. My guest this week is Gary Lux, who's one of Hollywood's premier music mixers with literally thousands of projects to his credit. Before stepping out on his own, Gary was the head music mixer for Universal Studios, where he earned two Emmy Award nominations for his work with the Jacksons and Frank Sinatra. He has a wide range of music mixing credits, including Usher, Sting, Rob Thomas, Britney Spears, Nora Jones, No Doubt, and many more. Gary was also one of the first to delve into 5.1 surround mixing and has now mixed hundreds of titles in Dolby Atmos. During the interview, we spoke about dealing with stereo stems and immersive mixing, mixing for the headphone experience, mixing Van Halen and Atmos, his approach to mastering immersive material, and much more. I spoke with Gary and his studio partner, Dominic, via Zoom from a studio near Los Angeles. I want to talk to you specifically about Atmos because there's lots and lots of questions and you have lots and lots of experience. Again, you have experience that goes back to sort of the beginning of Surround Sound. When was the first Atmos mix that you did? So, you know, I had been dabbling in Atmos, but Russ at RSPE always wanted me to get an Atmos system. And I, I didn't really want to get one because I didn't really see a, a business model. I, you know, I'm not a re-recording mixer and I didn't, you know, I'm not mixing film, you know, as it were like that. And so, um, but my uh, partner, Dave Donnelly, and I had been nurturing the major labels during the pandemic and even before then, uh, just discussing where immersive, you know, was going. And so, um, you know, in order to, to have this capital expense with all of this gear and speakers and stuff, you, you have to have a business model, you know. So um, we were talking to the, to the major labels and we were setting ourselves up. I sent a couple of mixes in. And they approved it. And so we were we were on our way. And um, actually, while I was building the studio here, I was mixing at RSPE. They have a, a room there. And so while we were building this, we, we were doing the mixes there. So this is probably, you know, May of 21. We did a lot of stuff. Then we did, uh, then we did a lot of stuff. Then we did uh, J-Lo single and... Uh, you know, pretty much up to this point over the last uh, six months, we've probably mixed over 200 songs. So, but it's, you know, it's really interesting how the how the business comes to us through the record labels, through Universal, through Sony, through Rock Nation, through Rhino, you know, all of the labels that Dave has had relationships with 
you know, through the years. And uh, with my experience in 5-1 and Surround, uh, we became a good team. And, uh, you know, it's working out great. So, uh, you know, we're very thankful for this, for this newfound, you know, really this newfound workflow. Did you find the transition from 5.1 to Atmos Immersive? How did you find it? Was it easy? Was it hard? Was was it hard to get your arms around? So, you know, I mixed so much stuff in 5.1. And in my mind, you know, I always felt that had I, if there were more speakers above me, I, I even in 5.1, I always treated the front and the back. I always... I always thought in my mind that I was doming, that I, I always made this kind of a pattern going, you know, up like a doming type of thing, which now, of course, with the with the um, ceiling speakers, you know, we're able to achieve. So it really uh, easy, easy from a mixing standpoint, but difficult from a, you know, from a, you know, um, a delivery standpoint. Atmos is a, is a very difficult format to, to perceive, uh, to make it work, to deliver. And, uh, you know, luckily I have, you know, a monster expert here with my, my partner over here who's, uh, you know, takes care of all that stuff. It's interesting in that we're going from stereo to 5.1 after all the gear came out. It wasn't that difficult to get your arms around, but Atmos is different because there's a lot more going on and there's a lot more under the hood that most people are not familiar with. It takes some time to get used to. Yeah, it does. I mean, again, you know, people just think that if you just put stuff all over the speakers, uh, you'll have a great Atmos mix. But you know, Bobby, that in music, instruments and voices need to relate to each other. So there is a point when they can be too far apart. And, you know, you got a big hole in the mix. So, you know, guitars still need to be together. Vocals still need to be together. And, you know, uh, you know, so it's, a, it's very subjective. Do you find that your mixing approach is different in terms of the way you think about it from 5.1? No, not really, because, you know, when we get multi-tracks and everything is in a, on a, you know, a mono track, you know, that's when this format is really groovy. That's when 5.1 was, you know, really groovy, when you had discrete mono tracks that you were able to place all over the place, you know, without it having a stereo, you know, uh, uh, stem type of thing where it had a baked in, you know, um, reverbs and stuff. So again, you know, people ask me, you know, what, kind, what, what happens in the best mixes in 5.1 and surround is mono discrete is the best for placing things all over. So I, I approach it the same. I, I, you know, there's, there's a lot more to the Atmos and it sounds better because it, it, you know, where you place something in the spectrum here, it'll always be there. You know, when you, when you come back, you know, it's not like you're sharing two speakers then it has to be phantom center between the right front and the right rear. There's a lot of speakers in between to guarantee the, the placement that you, that you really wanted. You know, you just mentioned stereo tracks. How do you deal with that? So, you know, we do get we do get a lot of stuff that has stereo stems. Um, so basically what these are theoretically is you take all the stems, you put them up to zero, and it equals the stereo mix. Not quite. So what happens is when you do have um, the stereo stems, 
you're really not, it's, it's difficult to take them and pinch them inside the field. You have to kind of stay wide with these things because, you know, if you have a vocal and it's got some effects on it, if you start moving it in to create like a little bit of a center, it'll just start phasing and it just, it doesn't sound right. So it's, for a lot of stuff that we do a lot, it's, it's left, right, left, right, but height and back and, you know, but trying to pinch these stereo stems like towards the center doesn't work. How about the gear that you've invested in? Because it's not a small investment at all. And now I think we're finally getting to the point where there's packages coming out of speakers and everything, but it wasn't, um, and probably when you started, it wasn't like that. You're limited in choices, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I have the, you know, a terrific PMC system that I got from RSPE and I just got the new left center, right. I got the new sixes that they, um, that they got the single six. Um, and I have two, two, two sixes in, uh, in the back and, you know, the wafers all the way around and two 10 inch subs. It sounds, you know, terrific in this room. So it was, a uh, it's expensive, you know, and again, you, you know, like anything in business, you can't like, if you build it, they will come. You know, you have to have a business model in this or you'll find yourself with a lot of speakers in the room and not much going on. So, I, again, I waited a really long time before the floodgates opened and we made the investment. It's funny you should mention because there's a lot of Atmos facilities opening up. And I scratched my head thinking, where's all this work? You were plugged in already to the record labels so you can get it there, but... I think what you say is true. Some people are just opening up a studio and saying, okay, I got it. Come and work with me. It, again, it's always tough when if people do something for a knee-jerk reaction in business and anything else. And I, I keep saying this. I, I tell Dominic all the time. I tell everybody. I tell the world. This is a, this is a gift that's come back to me. Um, you know, I was one of the original pioneers in 5.1, and, um, and then it went away. But because Apple has, you know, mandated that they want spatial audio music, we're back. <laughs> so I'm very grateful, and it's fun to do, and had a lot of experience. Now, speaking of Apple, there's a fair amount of consumer distribution possibilities, and I wonder how many people are listening to just headphones as compared to, you know, a discrete speaker system. Well, you you want to talk to that? I mean, you know, I think the the hardest part is that, you know, Gary always says, you know, there's 30 people with this room, you know, but there's 6 billion people with headphones. And the experience that Atmos gives, you know, as Apple continues to update and perfect spatial audio, it's, you know, ever evolving. Um, and, you know, getting down to head tracking and the experience of it. I mean, to be honest, the fidelities it's unreal. And, you know, it's more fun. I mean, when you just put music in context of obviously, you know, the quality of the the work itself is important, but in terms of the experience, it's just fun. And I think, uh, I think Apple released what two weeks ago or so, you know, that spatial audio was the smash hit that really helped their, you know, numbers and streaming and all this stuff. And it comes down to the experience and being able to experience music in a new way that brings a new life to old songs from 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or even 20. And, you know, some of the classics of the seventies and eighties that are getting kind of rebirthed 
you know, getting to hear, you know, friends and colleagues and, you know, consumers talk about their excitement and how they got to relive this song and, you know, speak to it is, is I think an important aspect of, of what it's done for, for music again. You know, Bobby, you know, people have been chasing repurposing music forever. We're going to remaster it. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. But this is really something, you know, you know, we all know Apple wants to sell headphones and we're very uh, cognizant of the fact that even though, you know, I've got 15 speakers in this room that we're 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 reducing this for the consumer to have the best experience. And when we do check our binaural headphones and we do check the headphone reduction of things, you know, if we feel that something is too bright, too loud, or something based on the headphone, we'll go back and change it because that's really our job is to, you know, I may hear it differently in the speakers, but because of the, you know, the rendering that's going on, uh, a high frequency that I may have put in the back is a little too bright. It's a little too prominent, whatever. So we'll deal with it from the consumer standpoint, because that's where it's got to go. You know, speaking of spatial audio and Apple, it's not only music, but it's other program as well. I I was sitting in the dentist's office the other day with my Apple headphones on, and I was listening to talk radio. And I turned my head, and... It's moving. The, yeah, and, 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 you know, the person talking was over here, and, and it was like, oh, <laughs> what happened there? You put, turn your head down, he's up here. Yeah, well, probably the most, you know, besides that gyroscoping type of thing, the fact that we're in, you know, 2448, you know, we start off, we're done with MP3s, we're done with 16-bit 44-1, that's gone. So, you know, the fact that we're at 2448, you know, gives uh, the listener a really good chance of what it sounded like when, when it left our hands. Let's talk about the tools that you're using. Uh, what are you using for monitoring? So I, I do have the PMC system. But the monitor controller, I'm sorry. Oh, the monitor controller. Oh, I, I've, I've got a, you know, I got the the S6. I mean, S6. I have two S1s. I had the S6. I have two S1s and a dock. And it's really fantastic. It's uh, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to use. And, uh, you know, it gets us, you know, where we need to be. You know, so much stuff is done inside, in, inside the editing pages now you know, with clip gain and stuff. It's not so important for us these days to have the Penny and Giles faders and because we just don't make those radical type of moves anymore. We're much more in a, you know, just a, you know, uh, just, you know, slight moves on on the faders because we do so much in clip gain, you know, before we get to it. So, um, uh, yeah, and then, you know, a bunch of iPads. You know, it's, it's, we love it. And uh, it's very simple to use. And it's mostly really more of what we, what we need as opposed to 90% of the console that we wouldn't use to begin with. It's a lot better than the early days of 5.1 where there was no way to actually change the level of all the speakers at once. You had to kludge it together. No, we had to really uh, mix it going in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. What are you using in terms of plugins? So, you know, I mean, I have just the same plugins as everybody else has uh i sort of really love the massenberg this the uh mdw um that thing is fantastic <laughs> i use uh the axe what is it the waves the waves, the waves axe. I, it's it's you know it's probably as old as i am 
but you know there are just some things that just work you know all the time an inflator and uh, the gofos uh you know those type of things uh you know we do get a lot we get a lot of the stuff that's has the effects that are already baked in so most of the job in in atmos is to clear it up you know make things you know take out some mid-range you know add some of the clarity because in a stereo mix things some some to the middle once we start pulling things apart you can you get a little bit more clarity in the in the eq section so we're we brighten things up a little bit and it's a little bit of a different animal because you know because of the subs you know i've talked to other mixers and mastering engineers and everybody said okay when we started to do this there was no call to make things louder and all of a sudden it's starting again are you finding that where people want louder mixes? And and I know that you can't go beyond minus 18, but you can yeah, still Yeah, that's right. It. And I think that is the best part of this format is that we're all in it. Minus 18 is it. And there's, you know, we're just not mixing. We're not doing level for hysteria. It's very, a lot of dynamic range. And so I think that's a great thing, you know. I think one of the difficulties is dealing with the client's on the other end, when we first started, you know, on the review and approval side, you know, a lot of the labels don't have rooms readily available for, for artists to get into. So, you know, we're sending binaurals and now MP4s as, you know, more um, uh, Apple headphones, pros and Maxes are, are being used. And one of the things we dealt with early on was the loudness. You know, most artists are used to seeing that bar at a certain volume and knowing what that means. Uh, to the mix and you know it's all the way up for them and it's still not you know to that level so kind of walking through what it means how it's going to end up on apple because you know when you have uh, i think it's called sound check uh enabled it'll kind of balance everything out so you can get that that um that headroom back but kind of just explaining that process you know that adobe master doesn't mean that it's you know slammed to to all heck and back so there's a little bit of difficulty there but i think you know as we're moving forward you know the best Thing is obviously being able to turn it up in a room okay well that leads to a question then since you're coming in after the fact most of the time the stereo mix has been done and obviously everybody signed off on the stereo mix but it's really hard to make it sound the same and just in terms of its vibe i'm not saying it's better or worse it's just maybe somebody is so married to the stereo mix and you're going, well, it doesn't have this glue. It doesn't have, you know, whatever it might be. Are you running into anything like that? Again, part of the gift is that these things have been signed off on. I'm not flying things around in the room just for the sake of making, you know, Star Wars here. It still has to be congruous with the, with the mix. It has to make sense. I believe a good static mix with some things that are pulsating and moving, you know, constantly is, is, is a nice thing. And an effect needs to be you know, left or right or whatever, then, you know, so be it. It's a fun thing to do, and we're enjoying it, and uh, again, it's the gift of my career. A few months ago, I saw somewhere, and then we had a slight discussion about it, where you were doing a Van Halen mix. Yeah, we did. We did a we did an Atmos mix of Hot for Teacher, and uh, Alex was here. It was actually the um, year anniversary of Eddie's passing. So Alex was here and this was this was unbelievable. We did the mix. We had a great time and that was it. You know, it's and you know, Bobby, it's tough to take a three piece band, you know, again and 
and put it into 15 speakers. You know, I mean, Eddie certainly drives the bus, drums and bass, you know, so how much can you do? So, you know, where, you know, so by adding sub and some, you know, reverb and stuff and making a little larger than life. And it had some fun effects in it that we were able to kind of twist and turn. So Alex appreciated it. And it was actually a very sentimental day when he was here. He was pretty teary eyed and stuff, but it was fun playing it. You mentioned that uh, Don Landy, the original engineer, was Yeah, there he too. was here too. Yeah, he was here. He's, uh, I mean, a legend. Yeah. I think they may be mixing it, one of the records, I'm not sure. I heard that possibly uh, Dweezil Zappa was mixing it. You know, he was very close with Eddie, and I think there's a relationship there. So, uh, but, you know, we kicked it off. <laughs> what do your clients expect from you? What are they looking for before they sign off? You know, I, I think they're they're looking for a, you know, just a, a larger version of what they of what they already what they expect. Um, you know, it's funny we sort of play. I say we're always kind of playing the video game of the song. You know, I've got I got fifteen speakers here, so I mean, you know. You know, when you've got something in stereo, you got to work really hard to create a 3D type field in here. You know, when you've got speakers like this and nothing needs to be louder, you just give it a little bit more placement in a different place and it sounds louder. So, uh, you know, so our clients, most of them really don't know about spatial audio. You know, the younger from the record labels, they know that it's an important thing to do. We get a lot of calls. And they're, you know, we get them, we get a lot of songs and we turn them over and they're very grateful. Sometimes an artist will go and, and listen to something and maybe come back with a little more of this, a little more of that. You know, it's impossible for people to sign off on something unless they're touching a fader. So we're, you know, we're fine with all of that. But, uh, you know, we want them to want them to be excited, you know, about about hearing it in a way that they've never heard it before. Okay, so there's, as you say, there's 15 speakers. And for instance, with the uh, power trio, there's only so much you can do. But even with the complex mix, there's a lot of places to put things. Where before, you had to use compression, a lot of EQ, in order to find a space for everything. And now you don't have to do that because there's, spatially, there's a lot. So, do you find yourself not using as much compression or EQ or anything because... You know, I've, I, you know, we analyze the tracks that come to us, theoretically mastered stems or close to what the, what the record is like. And, you know, because this is a little, little bit of a different beast, you know, we do put some compression, but I, I treat it across all the stems. I still do like my own kind of... Um, a mastering thing where I have an EQ across everybody and a compressor across everybody. Sometimes I'll go in and individually do some things, but typically I want to do it from a global stance where we're constantly A being, here's the record, here's our mix, here's the record, here's our mix, back and forth, to see that we have, you know, the continuity of, of really what it is and that things are as present, you know, uh, you know as the stereo mix. And in most times, we beat it. <laughs> most times, you know, most times you know, it's it's easy to do. You know, you hear it. It just it just it just explodes, yeah. you know, when, when you open it up. You mentioned mastering. 
do you ever master or send it out to master? This is the big part that's um, that's confusing to people because Dolby calls what they do inside their render, they call it mastering, you know, the mastering suite. But it's not mastering as we know it, where you take a two-track mix, send it to a mastering engineer, and he embellishes and, you know, and compresses EQs and stuff. So after, uh, after an ADM is made, it's done. It's done. It, and, and I must say, it's, it sounds fantastic going through the renderer. I mean, a lot of times we're listening in HDX and we're listening. And as soon as we're done with the mix, we go, does it sound better? Does it sound a little better? Because once we're off the HDX cards and we're through that renderer, it has that sound that has the glue of Dolby Atmos that that's in there. And it, it's very pleasing. You know, it's interesting because I've talked to a number of mastering engineers that are mastering full albums and there's not really a tool for mastering because you can't do crossfades and things like that. It, it's it's way different. So you're doing a song at a time and that kind of eliminates some of the, the magic of mastering. Yeah. You know, we, we have an approach to, to, I guess, mastering for lack of a better term when it comes to doing albums and the assembly process. It's quite tedious uh, because you're dealing with so many uh, automation points and, and all of that. But, you know, there, it really is a nice process to be able to, to get the mix across the entire project to be pretty seamless. You know, we originally, when you're going from track to track and trying to bounce from individual Pro Tool sessions, when you go to do a listening session, you know, it's pretty unequal, you know, and kind of a, an abrupt process. So when we started, you know, our kind of mastering assembly process all in one Pro Tool session for, you know, consecutive album that gives a nice opportunity to really create kind of a cohesive environment that was close to, you know, that of the stereo masters when they did the, the, the lineup. But only from a volume standpoint, that's not EQ. So when we, when we put it, when we put all the tracks into an assembly session, we have a VCA master across everything so that, you know, we then go through the the loudest song in, in the track, and then we find out we put that at minus eighteen, and then everything is judged to that. You know, just like you would do. You've had a lot of experience in this. You've listened to a lot of your own mixes, and I'm sure a lot of other people's mixes. So, what makes a really good immersive mix? If you're going to put your finger on it, what makes a great mix? No, I I I I guess I approach things orchestrally. For me, it's blend. And I don't, you know, I don't really want to hear something that's riveting coming out of the right rear speaker. That would be annoying to me. That would draw my ear to it and not to the lead vocal, which is the most important thing in the song, the melody of the song and where it's coming from. So um, it's, I, I still think, though, that discrete mono recording makes for the best immersive sound where you can have... a you know, the guitar can be over up on the upper left side and, you know, you don't have its stereo counterpart somewhere else. So I, I you know, and I go back, Bobby, I go back a lot of times, you know, Dominic, and I, I play some of my old 5-1 mixes. I never mix from stems. I, I only mix from, you know, from multi-tracks because back when we were doing 5-1, I mean, when I did Janet Jackson and Usher and Foo Fighters and all that, I mean, I, I got the multi-track. I had the record, I had to bounce back and forth and I had to recreate all of the events. I never got the echo, never got stems, never got the compression. So it was the world according to me where I 
you know, bounce back and forth until it became my own. I stopped listening to the, you know, the stereo, you know, record. But I still believe that beautifully recorded mono discrete, you know, sound makes for the best immersive sound. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, people ask me, you know, you know, about, you know, about recording in Atmos, you know, it's sure we can put up a Deca tree and all that type of stuff. But again, when you want to be able to feel something in the definitively in the Atmos field, that's just off to the left or up to the right, that's, and it's there by itself, there's nothing like it. It's, it's like the planetarium of audio. There are some mixers that use beds a lot, and there are others that say, I don't need it except to put something into the subs. How do you come down on that? So, you know, we're, we're pretty much of that mindset. We, you know, use the bed for for the sub, and most of our stuff is uh, is objects, only because we want to guarantee, again, the placement of things. We've got some tricks that we use you know, the bed for when we're kind of running out of gas or whatever. But, um, you know, mostly objects. Um, I think some of your better mixers are doing things like that. Um, I understand why people would put things in the bed if they've, you know, they got one computer and they're mixing on headphones and it's, you know, you know, they don't have the gas. So, you know, learning, that's a good, that's a good learning platform. But to really get into the definitive placement of things, you know, it's mostly object. Yeah, driven. I think a lot of it's also driven off the, you know, the sonic differences between working in the object space and working in the bed and its limitations and how that ends up on headphones. We spend the time in the room, but if you were going to work in the bed, you would constantly be needing to monitor what's an object and what's in the bed and paying attention to, you know, what the, um, the spatial aspect of it, how that plays into it, what it sounds like. And you have, a lot, you have a lot more control you know, in when things are in the bed as to, you know, where they are in the binaural, you know, the near, the mid, the far, you can't do that in, you can't do that in the bed. Yeah. Okay. Last question then, Gary, are there any trends in immersive audio that you see? I mean, where's it going? Well, you know, I would be remiss as a senior statesman of surround sound. If I didn't mention, because I do this all the time, every time I get to speak, that there's a tremendous opportunity in our business for young engineers to learn Atmos. Old dogs like myself are not going to spend the time to go learn this. So where someone like my partner over here spent three months, eight hours a day learning Atmos so that he could be useful to me, I mix, he does what he does, we mix together, we're a team. There's a tremendous opportunity for young people to learn Atmos. And in the trade off that they can have with a mixer is they could take care of the IO, they could take care of all the ballistics, they can make sure it gets delivered the right way. And the trade off is they can learn how to mix from guys like you, from guys like me. So again, there is an assistant engineer opportunity. Just hired Cassie here, she's a 19 year old girl, and she's our intern, and she's. Uh, She's killing it now. And so, uh, you know, we're just looking for young people that we could just train in this in this format because it's very difficult to deliver it. It's very difficult to understand it. And uh, better minds need to, you know, better younger minds need to deal with this. You can find out more about Gary at GaryLuxMusic.com. That's Gary, 
G-A-R-Y, Lux, L-U-X, Gary Lux Music, all one word, dot com. Also, for more with Gary, go to episode 213, where we talk extensively about his background. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 